Hey there, Intrepid Bike Shed listener. We've been nominated for the Best Dev Podcast in the first annual Hacker Noon Noonies Awards. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love if you could cast a vote for us and let the world know that you care. We've made a nice short URL for you to follow so you can find the voting page at tbot.io slash noonies. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash N-O-O-N-I-E-S. And we'll also include a link in the show notes. Thanks. That's fine. I quit that. No, no. That's fair. (laughs) Bye. Bye. You made Tom run away. Aw. Here, let's just say it once, and he can edit it however he wants. Hi, Steph. Hi, Chris. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? Well, I uh, just rotated off of my most recent client project, which went for, I think it was something close to five months of my time. We were on it for a little bit longer. There was a design sprint and some things that happened before I got there, but then I got to join the team and worked on it for a while. And it was very different. And I think there's some interesting takeaways from those differences. Cool. Yeah. I feel like there's some layers to where you said it was different. Can we unpack that? Yes. So primarily what I'm talking about is technical difference. So the stack that we were using, just to recap, I think I've mentioned some parts of this in previous episodes, but to collect it all together, the back end was MySQL for the database, Python using Django REST framework. So using Django, but very lightly, and then using Django REST framework, which is a layer on top of that and that makes it easy to build REST APIs. So that was the back end segment. On the front end, we were using Angular and TypeScript, and there are some other subtleties in there. There were custom internal build script or build processes and tools for the company that I was working with. But primarily, Angular and TypeScript were the things. And so TypeScript's a bit more familiar to me. I've worked with AngularJS in the past, but not so much Angular, which is the new version, which naming is hard. But that's aside from the point. But yeah, so it was a very different tech stack. That's that's the main thing. And there were just a lot of comparison points through. You know, now that you mentioned that, I don't know the difference when you said Angular and AngularJS. It's just a versioning? AngularJS is like in a in terms of version numbering is angular version 1 i think it was called angular js at the time but i think they really mm-hmm. leaned into that and so angular js if you see that written as one word refers to version 1 okay then when they went to version 2 it was a pretty hard breaking change a lot of things fundamentally shifted they switched to typescript as the primary authoring language you technically can write it in javascript but mm-hmm. the officially supported language is typescript and then every version from there on is referred to as angular So Angular is version 2, but it's currently on version 7. Interesting. Okay. So equally, it gets called Angular, Angular 2, or like Angular 7. All three of those sort of refer to the same thing. And I found myself a lot of times searching, and I would search for blah, 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 Angular. And I would get some result. I'd click on it, and I'd be like, oh, damn, this is AngularJS. So I'd have to go back and add dash AngularJS to the Google search to avoid any of those results. And it's... It's a really interesting example of very significant breaking changes and the effects on a community and then weird naming changes. And yeah, I had heard some of those grumblings. I haven't worked with Angular, but I slightly recall when Angular 2 came out and it was such a big change that those that were working with version one had a very hard time of migrating or they either just felt that they couldn't migrate. So, okay, it's good to know. 
I didn't know that they had rebranded in a sense. (laughs) Yeah, rebranded, but kept sort of the core brand. And luckily, my experiences with it, I've worked with AngularJS and I've worked with Angular, but I've never tried to port anything over that hump, which my understanding is it's somewhat significant, although I think they did some work to try and backport or make that a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because the other thing, we were on Python, but we're using an older version of Python, Python 2.7 which at this point I think is like 10 years old or something like that. So Python 3 came out many, many years ago Mm. and is the sort of canonical example of hard breaking changes between major versions. So it's funny that I actually experienced two of those in this project, although I was on the latter of one of them and the former of the other, but here we are. Did you do some of the work on the back end or were you mostly on the front end with Angular? So that's actually, I think, one of the really interesting things. Initially, the plan was for myself and Edward Lovell, who were the two developers on the project, to sort of equally work. Typically, when we're working, when Thought Potters are working on projects, we try and be full stack, unless there's a strong reason not to be. Like if there's mobile, typically web developers at ThoughtBot aren't going to branch over onto that side. But ideally, both of us would have been working on both sides. Mm -hmm. But early on, there was sort of hurdles to learning, a lot of them. And so we ended up pretty early on specializing. And the plan was always to unwind that and to try and do more overlapping. Mm -hmm. But I would say I did 90 or more percent of the front end work and Edward did 90 or more percent of the back end work. And so there was a little bit of just kind of like, oh, well, it makes sense. I'll just grab this thing. But for the large part, we kept it very separate, which was interesting and kind of weird. That's kind of cool. So with y'all combined, you made one full stack developer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think the phrasing is perfect. (laughs) Okay, neat. Yeah, I didn't realize that Edward was spending as much time in Python. How do you feel about wrapping up the project? I feel good. We were able to get to a good point, I think, deliver... Most of the core functionality, it's always interesting seeing what you achieve of the initial vision, especially when you're talking about something that's going to be developed for a number of months. But I think throughout the project, we kept a pretty good iterative mindset. And rather than having big grand visions and designs of things that we wanted to exist in six months, we said, largely, these are the feature areas that we want to work on. And we kept, you know, within each of those, we tried to build a minimum version and then iterate and build on top of that. And as we generally say, I think that's a pretty good way to work and helped us get to a meaningful endpoint and a transition back over to the internal team at the client. Awesome. Well, that sounds like it was a a good project. Five months is a pretty decent time, too, Mm -hmm. where like you feel like you really got to spend some time bonding with that team and and feel like you built something that the team can then carry forward. So that's kind of a nice time frame. I would say in this case, there was a little less of the team bonded. We were primarily the development team. And then it was only right at the end that we started to do more of the the handoff back to their team, which was interesting because we were trying to learn unique aspects of their tech stack and their approach to coding. We had to sort of adapt to their style without as much guidance around that, which was a little bit tricky. So were there any interesting technical aspects of the project? The project itself was relatively straightforward in terms of what we were building. It had some reasonable real-time things going on, but for that we did the minimum implementation, which for this case was long polling, which worked fine and got us to where we needed to be without having to do fancier things that, you know, WebSockets or whatever. One of the main things that stands out to me is I just kept coming back to wanting GraphQL over and over and over again, uh, to the point that Edward was, uh, he would say it before me, but he would be like, if we just had GraphQL, <laughs> uh, because I came kind of a broken record. But it was, in my own defense, I don't think it was just like, oh, there's this shiny new thing that I really liked when I've used elsewhere, and I wish we had it here. Edward and I were sitting next to each other, working side by side constantly. 
And still, it felt like we were so reliant on each other. We had to sync up across every single decision related to the API. What fields are we going to return? Should we include this nested resource or should we not? Should we make it generic at this point or should we make it specialized? And this was with only one client. That only gets worse when you have multiple different clients that Mm -hmm. have those sort of needs. We ended up with a bunch of cases where hitting the endpoint for a certain resource would return that resource with a nested resource with a third nested resource inside of that, which we use sometimes and we didn't others. And it just, it was interesting to me how small the scope of this project was and yet how acutely I felt the pains that GraphQL Mm -hmm. in theory can help you work around. So as someone who hasn't used GraphQL very much, when you talk about you had to have these conversations with Edward to figure out what the response would provide, would you not have to have those same conversations? Like that part still needs to be implemented on the back end. So wouldn't that conversation still take place? Sort of. So the difficulty with REST and with the way that we were building this is if I needed something, I needed it to be added and I had to have a conversation and say, can you please add this? With GraphQL, you can end up in a slightly different world where Edward could have just exposed the data that's available on the server side. So in this case, we were doing presentations. Presentations have many slides. Slides have content within them. And so what I ended up with were a lot. There's actually one higher level object called a session. So you're running a session. So it's like you're leading a presentation. For that, you need the data about the presentation. For that, you need the slides. So we had this nested hierarchical sort of structure. And we kept having, I kept being like, ah, so I'm on a page showing the session, but I really need the presentation. Do you think you should just give me that you know, in the payload? In the type system of GraphQL, you would just say a session is associated to a payload. And the front end developer can at any point then say, okay, cool, I want to query into the presentation. And you know what? I know the presentation is associated to slides. So let me also grab those. And it allows the front end and the back end to be much more strongly decoupled. So I could just choose as the front-end developer to query into whatever data is available. And if I needed something different, it's not something different on this endpoint or on this serializer. It's can you add to the type system of the back end that this is true? And then any future query that I need is empowered by that. Oh, I like that, that you can add it to the type system. I like that mentality. So as you're building out an API I know that I'll often build it to spec. I only provide exactly what I need to for that endpoint. And then if we're using GraphQL, it shifts to where it's like, we'll expose as much as possible within reason as you iterate through the work process, but expose as much as possible and then let the client decide what they would like to pull down. Cool. That's neat. It is. And ideally, if you do it well, then all of the fulfilling of that data on the server side is lazy. So there's no overhead to it, essentially. You only pay the cost of having to query or compute or whatever you know the necessary thing is, that data, when you need it. So there were a couple of computed fields that we exposed via the API, but they were computed every single time because we just figured we'd return, you know, this is the data for a presentation. Certain views of the presentation did not need those computed fields, but the serializer was still doing the work to create them and to send them down and the bytes over the wire and all of that stuff. With GraphQL, I just wouldn't ask for them in a view that didn't need them. They wouldn't be computed on the server, and we would save on all of that. And it saves ever having to really have that conversation. That's the main thing that, like, bytes over the wire, that's good, it's speedier, it's more performant, et cetera. But it was that tight, tight coupling that Edward and I had where I I was just, I would just walk over to him and be like, "Ah, can I get one more field, please? Can you add this one thing? Can you nest this within that? And it was a lot of, I needed so much from him. And with GraphQL, you can really separate that. And so... I ran into that 
recently on the project that I'm working on, which is now the project that you're working on too. Indeed. Welcome to the team. Thanks. And the thing that I ran into is we're not using GraphQL on the project. And I love that GraphQL, you can request certain fields and you don't have to request all of them for a particular type. So I was fetching a particular resource, but I didn't need the user to be included. In fact, including the user was a bit expensive because we're having to make an API call to get certain information about that user. So it turned into the world of where we want to serialize a resource, but without the user. So then you run into that naming of like, well, we have this resource and now we have another serializer that's like resource without user or resource with user. And I can see how GraphQL would eliminate that concern. Having just rotated back onto this project this week, that is another, I have definitely looked at this one and been like, oh man, it would be real. There are a significant amount of the code base is dedicated to presenters or serializers in this app. And I have found myself on many occasions being like, all right, I'll just add one more field and I'll just add one more field. And it's an association here. What do we do with that? Do we always provide it? Do we sometimes provide it? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I tried REST again and certainly could make an app out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd I'd be excited to work on a project where I get to fully dive into GraphQL. Since I've heard such glowing remarks from you about it, I'd be excited to dive into it more. Yeah, it definitely has its uh, trade-offs and complications, but I think overall, the more that I work with it and the bit of time coming back to rest, I'm I'm pretty sold on it as Mm -hmm. a technology. But yeah, the probably the other thing that stands out from this project for me is this is the first time in a while that I got to work with a ThoughtBot designer. So Elena Natario was on the project for, I think, the entirety of the run, but certainly the entire time that I was on. And it was really fantastic getting to work with a ThoughtBot designer. So our designers work in code. So she was in the Angular and in the HTML associated with the Angular. And the back and forth there was sort of the opposite of what I felt with the API back and forth that Edward and I were having. It was this very positive, collaborative thing. She would build the necessary stuff and I would pick it up when I was ready. And she was using BEM and some other things that made it very easy to just kind of run and, oh, I need this addition. Okay, just add this class. We've got some utility classes and things. And it was great. I absolutely love it when I get to work with one of our designers. I feel like it doesn't happen nearly enough, just the different types of projects that we get booked on. And I'm always just amazed at like how much knowledge they have because our designers are unique where not only are they exceptional when it comes to design, but they're also exceptional at implementation for front end work. And they just make my life so much easier. Yeah, it's such a positive collaboration. And I, I feel like it's also one of those by virtue of the, the like sort of Venn diagram overlap and skill sets, the whole process is just better. Design isn't this thing that happens at a distance out in front or separate from the developers. It's this very connected thing, similar to like, it's great when product managers and developers are talking and then the user is pretty close to that. And like the smaller the feedback loops and the smaller the communication gaps, the better. And this was the first time I got to experience that with a designer in a while. And it it really was wonderful. Yeah, that's something I still see a good bit at a number of companies or teams that I work with where I feel like the designers are still separated from the development team more than I would prefer for them to be, where designers will collaborate with the product manager, they'll collaborate with any users that they have access to. And then in certain cases, those designs will make its way to the team and the rest of the development team will can react to those designs and provide feedback. But there's a lot of times where the designs sort of come through and they're just sort of like handed over the fence. And I would love if, like you said, there's more collaboration where we're working together each step along the way. I feel like that's such a better development style where we're working side by side in tandem versus receiving a design and then a developer is implementing that design. 
So I think that covers the high points of my adventures over there. But uh, how about you? What's up? Uh, what's up in your world? Let's see. Ruby 2.7 preview was released about a month ago. So I took some time recently to dive into the features that are coming out. There's some. There's some pretty neat stuff. That's pretty sure I was on 2.5 most recently. So I got to get back into this Ruby world. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth checking it out. There's some really neat stuff headed our way. In particular, when you look at the Ruby 2.7 preview, they highlight the garbage collection compaction. There's also some improvements being made to the REPL, which I'm really excited about. Like IRB? Yes, to IRB. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What are all of these things? The garbage collection compaction, is that... What are they? <laughs> I'll be honest, this one feels a little above my pay grade, but I'll, I'll do my best at talking about it. So the garbage collection improvement that they're making, I believe it's a patch that was created and submitted by Aaron Patterson. And the feature or the patch that he wrote up is so well detailed. It's really incredible to read through. We can link to it in the show notes in case anyone's interested in it. Indeed. And I think based on the weird timing of these episodes, the episode that we recorded with Aaron Patterson will come out before this episode. But I think he actually talked about this patch, which took him years, as far as I understand it, to work on this and to actually get it landed. So that's what I saw. I saw somewhere that it was like three years in the making and I I wasn't really sure. So I wasn't going to say it. But yeah, so few things I've done for three years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get anxious when I have a feature branch for three weeks, <laughs> and, then I, and then I release it. I can't imagine working on something for three years. That's incredible. And so what he's been working so hard on is improving that memory performance, because when Ruby allocates objects into the heap or into memory, a lot of that allocation, and then when we free up the objects in that space, can get a bit messy, where we end up having empty space. And this compaction will include compacting those heaps down so then that way it frees up some of that space again. And it's supposed to improve the memory performance. And I'm at the end of my knowledge. (laughs) It (laughs) sounds like disk defragmenting, but for memory, based on the little that I know about any of those things, just in the way you described it. But I also know no things. I've read less articles than you have at this point. I'm not familiar with dis- defragmentation, but I, I did see that someone referred to as cleaning up or helping with some of the memory defragmentation or memory fragmentation. So that's one of the ones that's coming out in potentially in Ruby 2.7. That's exciting. Oh, the improvements to IRB or to the REPL is really exciting. I was playing around with it last night. So they've added color for Ooh, a lot of the classes. That's yeah. big. The color's really nice. You can also go back. And so if you're defining methods inside, you can scroll up to then alter what's inside of those methods. So like multi-line editing within IRB? Multi-line editing within the IRB. Interesting. And then one of the other cool ones that I'd completely forgotten about, but there's a lot of information that ships with Ruby when you install it. I think it's called RI, the Ruby Docs. Yes. So a lot of that is already available on the command line, but I myself forgot that it was there, but they're now integrating it with IRB. So if you are on a method, if you're typing out, say, like a capitalize, then you can tab complete, hit tab twice, and then it will pop up the docs for that method. I will ask, though, the hard question here. Do you use IRB? Or I do. do you use Pry? I do use Pry. I'm pretty sure I use Pry in almost, like we have Pry Rails on almost all of the apps that I work on, and I've come to rely on a lot of Pry's features, although it would be hard for me to necessarily tease them apart at this point because I think I just use Pry. Everything you're describing sounds really interesting, and I don't know that it exists in Pry. So now, well, now I have to choose again. <laughs> it's great that this work is happening, but I wonder, will I now use IRB? I think you might have to use IRB. Uh-oh. I think you're going to have to make that call. 
and see which one wins the battle. Man, I just want to wear the same pair of clothes every day. I want to use the same REPL every day. I just want things to be simple. I want my editor to be... <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd, I'll be curious to see which one if you end up switching to IRB because I do typically default to using Pry, but having seen some of the capabilities with IRB, I think it would at least be neat to use it for a week and then see how I feel afterwards if there's some certain features that I miss in Pry versus now what's available, what will be available in IRB. You can be the canary in the ruby mine for the rest of us and tell us, oh, ruby mine, that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> not that kind of ruby mine, but you can you can let us know. Report back. No, this- no one ever wants to be the canary, though. <laughs> The canary might die. <laughs> no, just in like a code <laughs> Just in the fun canary sense. <laughs> yeah, you know the one. Yeah. So there's some other neat stuff. One of them that amused me is enumerable is gaining a new method called tally, which will tell you the number of occurrences in a list. So I feel like this is one of the common questions. At least I received it a lot in interviews where they'd give you a list of, say, letters. You'd have A, B, C, and B. And they'd say, create a hash that counts the number of times each letter appears in the list. And Tally will now do that for you. So Tally groups by and counts? Is that what it is? So you get like a hash with A is one, B is two? You do. Yep. Ah, yeah. I have a symbol to proc one-liner memorized for that. It's mm. like group by ampersand blah, transform values, something like that. Yeah. Transform values ampersand count. That's the one. Ampersand counts. That oh, relies yeah. on okay. Rails stuff though, because tra- I think transform values is an active support thing. I, I don't know what I'm doing at any point. <laughs> I, most of what I know is some weird combination of Rails and Ruby and I don't know which is which a lot of the time. I'm pretty sure transform values is just from Rails, though. I want to agree with you, yes. Yeah. But I don't remember off the top of my head either. But so you're saying tally is, that's going into innumerable. So that's core mm-hmm. Ruby. Yeah, I guess it everything is. you're talking about is core Ruby. Yeah. So everything's going into core Ruby. Yeah, that one amused me because now the interview question will be, how would you re-implement tally? <laughs> <laughs> now, the question is, will you remember the name tally? That's not necessarily the word that comes to mind when I think of group end count. Mm. So we'll see if this one ends up in muscle memory or not. That one did resonate with me. So yeah, uh, yeah, tally worked for me, made sense for me. There's also pattern matching that's coming to Ruby. That's exciting. And there's also the pipe operator that's coming to Ruby. Listeners in the audience, you can't see it, but my eyes just went very wide. (laughs) One of those is causing far more of a stir than the other one. (laughs) Ooh, hot drama, which is, wait, which, I have so many questions. What's the implementation like? Which one's hot drama? So the one that's the high drama is the pipe operator because folks have strong opinions on how the pipe operator should function. So those that are familiar with Elixir and Elm and using those pipe operators have the expectation that the expression on the left hand is then going to be passed as one of the arguments to the expression on the right hand. And that's is it first argument or is it the, I guess an element could be the last unused argument or? So it changes for Elixir. I'm pretty sure it's the first argument that it gets passed in. And I think for Elm, it's the last argument. So Elm and Elixir are slightly different. I may have gotten that backwards, but I do know that they, one of them is first and one of them is the last argument. So then it supports the idea of that function currying. So you can Mm -hmm. give it one argument and then wait to give it the final argument that the function needs to complete. And the pipe operator in Ruby is not like that. What's it like? Instead, it's really an alias for method chaining. It takes the value that's on the left-hand side and forwards it along to be the receiver for the expression on the right-hand side. I can tell that you're thinking about this. Yes. It's not immediately clear in my brain. Can you provide an example? So in Ruby, it will be essentially the first value on the left-hand side of the pipe. You could replace that pipe operator with just a dot 
So it would be just calling like person dot first dot name. You could essentially do person pipe to first and then pipe to name is the equivalent. How is the pipe different than just dot then? I don't think it is. There may be some subtleties there that I don't know, but my impression of the pipe operator and why people are, there's so much drama about, should we include the pipe operator in Ruby because it doesn't function how we would expect it to behave in Elixir and Elm? And then there's some rationale behind, well, Ruby is an object-oriented language. A lot of the functions expect to be called upon that value that's being passed through, while in a functional language, that argument is passed in as a parameter. I think Matt's made a comment at one point where he's like, we can't really fully implement the same version of a pipe in Ruby as some might expect it to behave in functional languages. Hmm. And I think he also doesn't have the intent of making it exactly the same. Uh, But it was introduced as an experimental feature, and then there's been lots of opinions on it. There's a really good write-up from one of the individuals on the Ruby core team where they did um, a wonderful job of going back and talking about the history of the pipe operator and just sort of providing a bigger context versus just, well, this is how it behaves in Elixir, but Mm -hmm. providing a fuller context of who first introduced the pipe operator, how it behaves, and then why it's harder to fit that within an object-oriented language. So that's kind of the the buzz around the pipe operator in the Ruby world. I don't know that I necessarily agree with the sentiment that Ruby is object-oriented and therefore we can't have functional constructs because we have, like, enumerable is a very functional interface. You're mapping and selecting and filtering. and I think that's one of the areas that it, it could be used more heavily. But there's not a lot of functions in Ruby that take the primary argument as a parameter, mm-hmm. where I think most of them instead expect to be called upon that right. value itself. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I feel like the code base that we're working on right now, historically, Derek Pryor spent a good amount of time working in. And I think he was on a, a functional kick at the time. So there's a lot of yield self which I think has now been alias to then, and then ampersand method for essentially trying to produce what is closer to the Elm and Elixir pipe operators. Mm-hmm. So we have dot yield self, ampersand method, filter by foo or whatever. There's actually a blog post that Derek wrote that we can link to that highlights it. But it's it's interesting to see folks who have been exposed to functional programming then trying to like force fit is perhaps a strong word, but trying to to bring some of those ideas back into Ruby. And then Ruby, both in terms of ideology and in terms of just like syntax and how it works, resisting it a bit. And yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a hard one where folks are so attached to an operator behaving in a certain way. So then it does, in a lot of folks' eyes, violate that idea of the least surprise, mm-hmm. where if you see the pipe operator, you're going to expect it to behave as you've seen it in other languages. So I understand the concern there. But I also just think it's interesting. Like It's one of those ideas where the Ruby core team, or Matt specifically, decided to implement it and give it some time. This is sort of like their design sprint process of releasing or introducing a new feature and then getting feedback from the community. And then we'll see if it goes into Ruby 2.7, if it's released, or if they continue to change its behavior before introducing it. Well, I look forward to finding out how that one plays out. But yeah, I I agree. I don't have a strong interest in having me personally a pipe operator in Ruby, at least not this particular behavior of a pipe operator, because since it really does just replace the calling the dot notation and then calling functions that way. I don't see it as a huge win, but it's also a language where I don't have to use everything that's there. It's true. 
Mm-hmm. Any other adventurous new things coming to Ruby 2.7? Yeah, so those are pretty much the features that I've had time to play around with in the preview. I'm sure there's some others that I'm, I haven't touched on. I also discovered that Ruby has a roadmap, which may be something that the whole world is aware of. But At I, a minimum, I did not know about the roadmap. Okay, okay, neat. I didn't know this was a thing, but as I was playing around with it more, I saw that Ruby does have a roadmap, and you can go and see all the features that they're considering and working on and responses to them, and it gave me so much appreciation for all these people who are doing all the work behind the scenes, and then you get to see the responses to why something's being pushed forward or maybe something is being pushed back. So yeah, if anyone is interested in what's going on with the Ruby language, that's a really fun place to to check out and just sort of keep an eye on to see what's going on. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I'm excited to take a poke at that myself because I did not know that there was a publicly available roadmap. But thank you for taking us on the tour of Ruby 2.7. No problem. I'm excited for it. Well, moving on, one last topic. We have another listener question this week. So once again, as a reminder to everyone out there, we absolutely love getting these listener questions in. Feel free to send them in to hosts at bikeshed.fm as an email address, or you can uh, hit up Steph or I on Twitter. And again, we are happy to take questions about anything code, career, really a wide spectrum of things. So this week, we have a question around NGRX, which is a little bit broader in talking about some of the state management libraries. But uh, I'll read the question, and then we can talk about some of the topics within it. Right now, I'm working on an Angular application using NGRX to manage state. I have a hard time understanding the benefits of NGRX side effects. To give an example, consider a component where you submit a resource to an API. If the submission is successful, the user should be redirected to a confirmation page. The solution proposed to me is the component submits the action requesting the resource to be created. A function defined elsewhere reacts to that action and creates the resource in the API. Upon creation, the side effect dispatches a success action Another side effect reacts to the action and redirects the user. I can't quite wrap my head around why this is a preferable way to work. Decoupling the component from the heavy lifting of state management is a good idea. It makes it easier to replace and is also easier to test. If the component triggers the effect like this, I prefer to write it in line though. That way I can clearly read the effects following a submission. What are your thoughts on this? So I think what we're talking about here is probably NGRX and Redux and Flux-like libraries in general. But I think the, the question is a little more specific to side effects within that world. So yeah, what are your thoughts, Steph? So I've only worked with Redux. I haven't worked with NGRX. And I can relate to their question where working with Redux, it was a new pattern for me, the idea that I'm going to send a message and then listen for it elsewhere and then react to that message. And now that I'm also working in Elm, I'm following that same pattern. And once I got the hang of it, it starts to feel fairly easy to implement, to know that I have to fire off a message. And then for Elm specifically, and the update message, I'll react to that and then do something else. I don't know if I like it. I certainly don't dislike it, uh, but it, it is a new pattern for me that I'm, I'm still sorting out my feelings around. When you were working in Redux most recently, do you remember the state management or the, the side effect specific aspect of Redux that you were using? Was it Redux Thunk? Yes, it was sunk. So I think that's an interesting part of the consideration. I think side effects within that world are incredibly complicated. And particularly if you're in a JavaScript ecosystem, you're used to being able to do things pretty directly. But I think what this person is describing in terms of the side effect management and NGRX and all of this is trying to borrow ideas from pure functional programming and bring them into the JavaScript side effect management world. 
And that is arguably quite complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, I think overall, the Flux architecture or the Elm architecture, which uh, I hadn't highlighted, but you rightly brought up that it's pretty much the same idea. Wasn't one of them based on the other? I'm guessing Flux probably had some inspiration from the Elm architecture. Redux in specific, the actual like history is a little bit weird, but there's definitely Dan Abramov has now said like, yep, absolutely. That's, that's definitely an inspiration there. Although I forget the specific sequence. But that idea of your view being able to emit these pure actions and then things can happen in response to that, but not having your view layer really do anything directly is, I would say, interesting. I think Redux in general or that whole pattern is really interesting and probably overkill for a lot of applications. Hmm. Looking at React in general, the addition of hooks recently, one of the hooks that they brought in is use reducer. Okay. So using state in a React component is now easier by virtue of hooks, but they also introduced use reducer. So you can have more complicated behavior, but still in local component state. And then you can add effects to that and say, like, I'm going to hit the API. So the the React core team is very clearly saying that the thing that this listener is asking, like, is, can't we just make this a little easier and not add all this overhead and indirection? At a minimum, React as a project is definitely leaning into that. Elm is sort of at the other end of the spectrum, but I think that's by necessity. It is purely functional, and you can't really get around that. So the effect system needs to be the sort of Elm architecture, a little bit of indirection there. I don't actually know that that's true, but that's my sense is that it's sort of a requirement of the pure functional nature. I think that's the part that I struggle with. I like that process of sending, firing a message and then responding to that message. I think it's just the indirection that mm -hmm. took me a bit of time to get accustomed to, to know when I send a message to go where to find how that message is being handled in the code base. That was probably the tougher part with Elm. It felt a bit easier just because I know there's the update function and I can essentially look through there which is also kind of neat because then when I open up the Elm application for that particular page, then I can see all the actions that are going to take place on that page. And that part's neat. Yeah, I think you're highlighting exactly my feelings on it as well, which is that list of actions and that specific update function is the value to this approach. Being able to see the stream of actions that are happening in a complex UI and being able to understand them as a list and being able to see exactly how your state will change over time in response to these actions is fantastic. But in order to do that, you got to figure out how to have side effects somehow. And so Redux Thunk, I think, is probably the most direct version that I've seen, where it's more of like a, a callback associated where you're dispatching the action. You also say, here's another, like a promise for a thing to do next. I forget exactly how Redux Thunk works, but... I see. So you're passing in what's going to handle that response along with the side effect? My understanding is you dispatch an action, but then you also have a callback, which gets yielded dispatch again. And so you can dispatch a secondary action with the response from the API or, or something like that. Okay. But it's a little more direct and you're able to couple those pieces together. So say like, fire off the API. And then when it comes back, fire off the second action that it's loaded. Or if there's mm -hmm. an error, fire off the error action. Mm -hmm. But that whole sequence of emitting actions is all together. Whereas NGRX or like Redux Observable or... I think there's a Redux observable as well that uses like RxJS type things, but they're all similar to how the handling of actions is elsewhere in a reducer file. The handling of side effects is elsewhere. And it's that separation that I think adds the confusion. Mm -hmm. I can see the case where you might want to do it, but I actually think it's kind of a heavy-handed approach in mm -hmm. my personal take. So the fact that you are a fine listener are struggling with that, I think it's pretty normal because you, by nature of, of what you're working with, you've distributed the logic of your application in a couple different places. It may be worth it if you have a really fancy application like 
you know, a drawing canvas editor sort of thing where you're manipulating state over time and you're undo and redo and you have this sequence of actions and manipulations to a complex piece of state that you want to manage primarily client side. But if you're fetching data and showing it in the page and then like clicking a button fires off another API request, I think you might be in a world that this is overkill and that indirection and that pain that you're feeling is just sort of real. Yeah, I like that idea that start with the simpler approach first or the more inline approach first and then wait for the complexity to grow a bit to where it makes sense to, as you mentioned, distribute that logic across your application. But yeah, I I also agree. I think it may depend on just your background and where you're coming from. So coming from Ruby particularly, I'm just not as accustomed to that workflow. So it's taken me a little bit to become comfortable with it. Client-side state management is a complex world that has changed probably more than anything else in that ecosystem as far as I've seen. And it doesn't seem clear to me yet that it is settled, that like, yeah, we figured it out. We got it. It's done now. I think the work happening in React seems really nice to me because it provides that gradual path. You can have local state. So like I've got an accordion and I want it to be open or closed and I can toggle it. Cool. That's very easy now with hooks. And then if you want to go up a level, you can say, all right, never mind, not not use state, but use reducer. It's a little bit fancier. Our accordion may have three states or you know whatever it is. And then you can kind of keep pulling that up. You can pull that reducer up in the application, the component tree, so that it's you know higher up and can share more down. The use of context allows you to do some fancier stuff. And then if you're still struggling and if you're finding that your app needs more cleanup and needs you know more centralized handling of actions, then I would say Redux or something like it probably makes sense. But I can't speak as specifically to the Angular side because I've not worked with some of the alternatives there, but I'm really intrigued by that gradual path that we're seeing on the React side. All right, well, I hope that was helpful. And thank you very much, Imrek, for sending in the question. And again, any other listeners out there, please do send in any questions you might have. Uh, we really enjoy getting to talk about things that we might not otherwise talk about. Anything else to say? Should we wrap up? I think it's that time. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.